Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name is Sam Iwerki. I'll be your chair for this lecture, and my telephone is turned off, so it won't buzz, and I won't be taking any pictures with my iPhone. If you care to follow suit, that would be wonderful. It's my great pleasure um, to welcome uh, Professor Abrahams as our speaker this lunchtime. He'll be familiar to many of you. He's had a glittering career in anatomy that has taken him um, from London to Cambridge and now Warwick. What's key to his presentation uh, this afternoon is what he describes as his sideline um, in art history, which has taken him to the Royal Collection, to the Fitzwilliam, to the Uffizi. And so without further ado, I'll hand you to Peter to talk to us about the secret history of Leonardo as an anatomist. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me at the back? You can, good. First of all, can I say what a pleasure it is to be here, and for me a personal pleasure to see two of my former teachers in the audience. I have to tell you, it gives me great thrill to have to lecture to people that trained me as a doctor and still manage to keep going a little bit as a doctor occasionally now. What I want to tell you is a wonderful story, and the story is about Leonardo da Vinci. Now, most of you will know these sort of images, and when I say Leonardo da Vinci, immediately you think of the Mona Lisa, the Lady with the Ermine, and in fact, these ones here of the Annunciation and the Baptism of uh, the Baptism here um, are, were taken actually two weeks ago when I was actually doing some work in the Uffizi. These are what Leonardo is famous for, but what I want to give to you today is explain to you why I reckon Leonardo was one of, if not the best anatomist, an anatomist extraordinaire, and for which he is not greatly known. And the reason he's not greatly known, I will explain to you now. First of all, I want to put this into context. Now, all of us in this room have seen modern anatomy books. We've even seen, I, I know even if you're not an anatomist, you will have seen modern pictures in atlases, in books, on DVDs, on apps. But this is what was available to Leonardo when he started doing his anatomy work. And I think we can all agree that old sumo wrestler here uh, is not exactly a great delineation of the bones of the body. I mean, yes, it does have a few nice little points, but you wouldn't be much good as a doctor if that was all your anatomical knowledge. But please remember, this is all that was available to him at that time. In fact, this is another famous Arabic text by Mansour that was used in, in Montpellier until the 16th century, way past Leonardo's time. Look at the head, it's on upside down. I love the eyes and the ears and the nose the wrong way around. I mean, yes, you can understand there's a few ribs there. Even the beard, which I think is gorgeous, this is in medieval Farsi. But in fact, the beard is not a beard, it's just writing about the head and neck, but made as a beard. And it sort of says there are two bones here and there are four bones here, etc. So Leonardo had nothing, absolutely nothing, with which to go on before he started doing his work. I would hope there are two or three people in this room, certainly one I know, certainly two I know, who could tell us a five-minute little talk about all of these people, all of them famous anatomists, famous medics. But what I want you to realise is that they all came from different periods. And I'm sure most of you have heard of Galen, who was really a... He was actually a Turk, but he was really a, a Greek-Roman doctor, Greek, a Roman doctor, looking after gladiators. And you will see that even in the 16th century, Galen, Avicenna, and Hippocrates were considered the triumvirate of medicine. So these are the people that were recognized as the knowledgeable people in medicine. Avicenna was an amazing, Ibn Sina is his other name, polymath and physician. And those of you that haven't read his canon, and really, even if you're non-medical, it's an amazing book to read, written over a thousand years ago. And for instance, one of the chapters is on testing of urine. There are 16 pages on how to correctly test the urine. Now, I know even the best physicians in this room 
couldn't write 16 pages on that because basically we now use a little stick that does it all for us. Then we come now to the person that I'm sure many of you know about and just last uh, two years ago we celebrated the 500th anniversary of Vesalius. Here's a modern uh, bronze that was made of Vesalius and all of you I'm sure have heard of the great anatomy book, the first anatomy book that was any use to physicians, the Fabrica. Now the Fabrica was considered a watershed not only in anatomy, but in illustration, medical illustration, and in printing. So here is a watershed date, 1543. I would say it is the beginning of the scientific revolution, certainly the beginning of the medical revolution. Interestingly, it was the same year that Copernicus published his heavenly bodies. So we're seeing things blossom in the 1540s, and this was the first real decent anatomy book. And many of you will have heard of Sir Charles Bell, because many of you have heard of Bell's palsy, and it's the sort of thing that anyone, even non-medical, has heard of. But look at this, and this is the most important slide today. Look when Leonardo is. He's a generation before Vesalius, so he had nothing to go on. But more importantly, and for any young scientist, and I see there are quite a few young people in the audience, and I presume many of you are scientists, if you don't publish, no one knows what you discover. It's publish or perish, but it's not the perish bit that I worry about, it's the information that was never published. And that really is important, because we did not know about the pictures I'm going to show you now until the 19th century. Basically, they were given, these pictures were done by Leonardo in the 1490s, 1510, etc., that period of 20-odd years. And they were brought to England by the Earl of Arundel, who put them in a folio, gave them to Charles as a present, and they were put on the shelf in Windsor and basically stayed there for 300 years. So all the pictures I'm going to show you would never contributed to the improvement of medicine. Because by the time that they were discovered in commas in Windsor, we had already had 400 years of anatomical sciences. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a series of his magnificent drawings with the concepts that he was showing. He was a conceptual man. He didn't just draw, he had ideas behind the drawings, concepts. And at the same time, I matched them with modern CT or MR or ultrasound scans that we are now using in hospitals every day. But I've had to cut them to match the actual same location. And you'll notice that he saw this skull down the midline, and we know he had a little saw. And this concept is looking at things in multi-directional presentations. We have the slice down the middle, which is a sagittal slice, and we have a slice across the front of the face, which is a coronal slice. So he was trying to show the way to inside the skull, and it's interesting that this maxillary sinus which we can see here, number eight, on a modern, modern CT scan, is in fact sliced in two different directions. A totally new idea. No one up till that period had thought of slicing the body to look inside it. Here we have another magnificent sagittal picture by Leonardo. And this one at the top, you will see the lines are all crossing at this point. And he said, this is where our senso commune, our common sense, lies. And actually, I know there are at least two endocrinologists in the audience who will immediately see my question mark there and think, ah, that is the site of the pituitary gland. Now, the pituitary gland doesn't control everything in the body, but it certainly controls an awful lot of things in the body. And it's interesting that that is where he reckoned the common sense lay. 
it's just a coincidence, but it's an interesting coincidence. And there is where the actual pituitary gland lies. You'll see that he got the vertebrae completely wrong here, as from a modern scan, but I don't think he was trying to show the vertebrae. What he wanted to show was the skull in a sagittal section. The next concept he had was, why don't we look at things diagrammatically? Now, to everyone who's a teacher in any subject, we now use this idea of diagrams very commonly. But I want you to know that this, known within the trade as the onion man, for obvious reasons, I personally have used this picture to teach medical students for over 40 years. This picture cannot be better. I don't think that my dissection and picture in my own book published two years ago with the layers of the scalp is any better. His is beautifully shown, all the layers and label. There is only a few little problems. Those are showing the internal structures of the brain and they're complete rubbish. Now, why do I say they're rubbish? Because he's copying what Galen believed was the internal architecture of the brain. And as I will show you in the next slide, he then went on to prove they were complete rubbish with a magnificent technique. But it's interesting that all these layers of the scalp were not sorted out until 1664, 130, 150 years after this picture was drawn. And remember, no one had seen this picture who was working on the science of the scalp. He also said, well, if we slice things in one direction, why don't we slice them in another? And he also did what we call axial slices, transverse slices. Here's a modern CT scan in slices of the same area. And you can see in a minute the globes and the eyes appear. Here's a modern slice from a thing called the Visible Human Project. But you can see the same area known as the cavernous sinus is beautifully anatomically drawn with the relations of all the cranial nerves. Remember, he had nothing to go on except what he dissected and what he reasoned and what he then drew. And I will show you, there are very few errors. There are few, but they are really minor errors. So I mentioned a minute ago that his picture of the cerebral ventricles was rubbish. So what did he do? He used the Pierre, the Perdu, the wax casting method that's been used for thousands of years by artists and he injected into, and this is one of my injection techniques in, in, in a modern book. Here's a modern CT scan. And you will see he then showed that the ventricles of the brain have a lateral ventricle, a third ventricle, a fourth ventricle, and we have different names for them. But actually, you're going to notice that that doesn't look exactly like that. And there is a reason. And the reason is simple. We know from this picture, which is showing a rete mirabilis, that this was the brain of an animal, of a cat. Now, he wasn't cheating, he just couldn't get hold of enough human brains to do the technique. And he did the technique on a cow's brain and got pretty damn close to what our present ventricles are known to look like. Now, he was an engineer. Most of you know, I'm sure, Leonardo not only was an artist, he was an amazing engineer. And engineers use this technique to show how things fit together. And you'll notice he did a lateral view, a posterior view, an anterior view, and here what we call an explosive view or an explosion of the first, second and third vertebrae. This is what we see on adverts for cars, on the television every day. But this is the first time that anyone used an exploded view to understand the mechanics of the human body. Absolutely original. 
He also, in this same page, commented on all the vertebrae, the correct number of vertebrae, except when you look very closely, Ibubu, where my little arrow is, he has 13 thoracic spine, although he says here there are only 12 thoracic spine. So whether he put that in as a mistake for people like me to find it generations later, I actually believe he did. He was a very cheeky fella. And I think he did it on purpose. But here was a completely new idea and technique being applied to the human body. Now I know a couple of anthropologists in the audience here will know the answer immediately to what I'm going to ask. But I want you to look at a living human. This person is alive and well and lives in Warwick. Alright? And you can see their body spinning around in space. Look at their sternum. Look at the sternum, that's the breastbone that you can all feel on yourself in the midline, on his drawing. This, by the way, is one A4 piece of paper. In other words, it is literally a piece of paper that size. And look how much information is on it. That's what's incredible. And you see that this is in segments. But you can see the human sternum is not in segments. So why did he get it wrong? Well, he cheated. And what he did, he probably copied one of Galen's pictures. And when I was in the Horniman Museum recently, I saw this person. Would anyone like to suggest who this person is? I know the anthropologists know the answer. Well, it's one of our other primate friends, Pongo, all right? And the lower apes, if you like, or the higher apes, whichever way you like to look at them, actually do have a segmented sternum, but we don't. And obviously, he copied that directly from Caleb, almost certainly. A little error, but not much when you can see that 90% of all of this drawing is anatomically beautifully perfect. Now, the eight pictures I'm going to show you now consist of one, two, three, four, watch carefully, Five, six, seven, eight. I cannot think of a better example of how a Mickey Mouse movie is made. When we make a modern film, a modern cartoon, a CGI type cartoon, we do with the camera exactly what he did with his drawings. And actually, if you look in this bottom corner, you can see he drew a little circle and showed the angle that each of his drawings was taken at. And the drawings are magnificent in their anatomical accuracy. They really are anatomically accurate. And as you can see, he shows them at all different angles. From the back, coming round across to the front. What is gorgeous about him as well, look at that. He's put a little tongue and the back of the, the four C's and the back of the throat and the tonsils. Just a little doodle in the top of the picture. He never wasted any space nor time. He also wanted to teach himself to understand how the body worked. Leonardo da Vinci wasn't someone who just took a photograph, took a drawing, did a drawing and left it at that. He was doing it to understand the workings of the human body. And I'm quite sure he understood the workings of the human body better than 99.99% of all professors of anatomy or surgery because he really was a very, very bright guy who cleverly, slowly dissected the body over many, many years. And one of the things he did, he wanted to show underneath structures, like what was in the armpit, what was the attachment to the bones around the shoulder. So what he did, he called them threads. And what he did, he took away some of the muscle and left a thread or a vector. Here you can see the modern equivalent done by Primal Pictures that we now use for teaching our students when muscles contract and relax. But I do like this one. This picture is special for me. I want every one of you in the audience to take your right arm, flex it at the elbow to 90 degrees, 
take your left hand and put it on your Popeye biceps muscle. So you've got your right hand like that. Now turn the palm of your right hand down. And I now want you to bring the palm up. And all of you should feel the biceps muscle here contracting. This movement we call supination. And Leonardo was the first person ever to describe this movement. This is in the 1500s, all on one page, beautifully describe the movement of supination. And you'll notice that the muscle that does it is biceps. Now the world literature took from 1500s till 1723 before anyone correctly described that movement. Even Vesalius got it wrong. If you read the Vesalius, Vesalius got the usages of the biceps and brachialis wrong and did not understand that this muscle, because of where it attacked, actually had two movements. One movement was flexion of the elbow, and the other movement was rotating the elbow so that the hand came uppermost, which actually is a very important movement. He also wanted to understand how man could step up or stand up, and you can see from these beautiful little drawings which modern we can do now in computer graphics. Whoops, sorry. Here is another of his beautiful drawings from lying to standing and looking at the way that we do it and where the center of gravity is. Of course, now we can do it in a much more simple way by using computer graphics, and we can see how the muscles contract. Contraction is green, and relaxation is red. But Leonardo drew hands, he drew man. He wanted to understand why this beautiful <coughs> structure that enabled him to paint so delicately worked. And he did, and this is quite incredible. I go back to the size. That is the size of the piece of paper that this drawing is on, A4. He did three drawings, well, three pieces of paper that had 15 drawings on them that completely covered the anatomy of the human hand. And he made, pointed out that this little bone, which, by the way, is this little bone, on the moving wrist here, it's a little bone called the pisiform. And he correctly pointed out that it was a special bone and different from all the other wrist bones because it was embedded in a tendon. Nowadays we call that a sesamoid bone. And he actually was the first person to point out and explain that this gave a mechanical advantage to the tendon that had the little bone in it. And he went through the hand, layer by layer. So here is his next picture. And you can see, we are now teaching our students actually using three-dimensional dissections. And my students put on 3D goggles, and they can watch this rotate in real 3D. But you can see that every little muscle that is on the dissection including the relationships of the tendons, which are very special, because one tendon pierces another here, he had got all anatomically accurate from his own original dissections. The first person to do that. He also had an idea that maybe we could do drawings to show lots of systems of one type of person. And he entitled this four times the size. If you look at the folds, this is four pieces of A4 called a Bologna piece of paper from the town of Bologna. And it's four times the size of nearly all his other work. And he called this woman. Now I have to say, I don't want to be sexist about 
but just look at the trapezius on this woman. Very strong. Look at the biceps. And without being rude, look at the breasts. They're not very womanly. I think most of you can guess why. Because his model was not a woman. His model was a beefy, bodybuilding sort of type who had huge trapezius, huge biceps, and what looked like breasts are, of course, pectoralis major that's very well developed, which you see in bodybuilders. In bodybuilders. Also, you will notice that he was very accurate in drawing what he saw, because here is a shriveled liver and an enlarged spleen. You can see those on the 3D next on this side, which is a modern 3D scan. You can see the liver there and the spleen there. Now, a shriveled liver and an enlarged spleen means this patient, the person that he dissected, was suffering some, some form of portal hypertension. They had some form of liver disease that had made the liver shrink and the spleen get enlarged. He was an incredible observer. He observed and drew what he saw. He didn't do anything by imagination. Now, those of you that know anything about the female anatomy of the pelvis will be astounded to see Darth Vader has appeared in the pelvis of this lady. Again, all that he has done here is copied partly Galen's work, and he has dissected a cow's uterus. We know he probably only dissected two women cadavers, two bodies that were women. And this is almost certainly taken from a cow's dissection, which has these big horns making it look like Carthena. But again, it's just that he didn't have access to women cadavers. He was always looking for ways to teach. Whether it was himself or pupils, he was a born teacher. And he thought, why don't I take a single system, the system I've just been telling you about, called Portal Venus system, and never mind the little drawing here of the appendix, a beautiful little drawing of the appendix and the cecum, but look here, the esophagus, the stomach, the spleen, which is enlarged, and the liver, which is rather shrunken. And here is the great portal vein. I've shown it here on an x-ray scan, and you can see there is the spleen, the portal vein, and here is the liver from a modern x-ray book. And yet he is showing that 450, no, 490 years before that picture. Got the concept of looking at a single system, which we now do with modern radiology, injecting dye into systems to look at them. Now, interestingly, this was the first picture that Martin Clayton, who is the master of the royal prince, in Windsor. He is the guy who guards on behalf of the Queen, who owns all these pictures, by the way, showed me this picture. He said, Peter, there's something wrong here. Here's the belly button. What on earth is that tube going up to the liver? And what are these four tubes coming from the bottom and going into the belly button? And I said to him, Martin, please look at my dissection. Here's the belly button. Here's tube one, here's tube two, here's tube three, here's tube four. He had made a mistake that the ones labeled number four do not go to the belly button. They go up the anterior abdominal wall, known as the inferior epigastric vessels. But this is the left umbilical vein, and the reason that it's still there which often it has already died after childbirth, is that the liver is diseased. And if the liver is diseased, this pathway reopens in the adult. Just look at the drawing of the peritoneum. It is so beautiful. It has almost a shiny quality to it. So yes, he had made an error, 
But what is even more fascinating, if you look at his little doodle, his little picture here, there's the belly button, the umbilicus, there's the internal thoracic vessels, there's the inferior epigastric vessels, and he's drawn them precisely correct to, to the side of the belly button. Amazing that he corrected his own mistake from this picture on this little drawing, which was obviously from a dissection. Now, as I said, all his concepts were new concepts about the human body. And one of his greatest concepts was that the heart, and I want you to remember, it isn't till 1628 that Harvey publishes the most tentative paper I've ever read. If you read Harvey's paper in 1628, it says, I think maybe the heart is a pump, which is the blood around the body. Honestly, if you read the original in translation, it is the most tentative paper I've ever read. And yet, of course, he was right and became very famous for it. But that's 1628, this is 1510. We're talking four generations earlier. And he drew all these beautiful pictures of the heart. Just look at the pictures of the heart valves, all pretty accurate. And this was a modern silver injection cast that I saw in 2012. And in fact, this was sitting at an anatomy conference. And I walked over to the person with a stand with this, and I said, wow, I didn't know you did Ox's hearts. And the professor looked at me and said, Peter, how on earth do you know that's an Ox's heart? You're not a veterinary anatomist, and as far as I know, you've never studied any veterinary anatomy. I said, no, I haven't. But I have studied Leonardo. And that, as you can see, is exactly a replica of the same heart that we see drawn by Leonardo. And yes, he was not looking at a human heart. He was looking at a ox's heart, a cow's heart. If any of you are interested in cardiology, just last year, or two years ago, Frank Wells, who is the cardiac surgeon in uh, Cambridge, published the most magnificent book on his lifetime's work called The Heart of Leonardo, of which these are two pictures that appear in the book. But there are, in fact, all the cardiac pictures of Leonardo in one book with modern dissections to show how amazingly accurate he was. I want you now to look at the candy floss. Yeah? Do you all agree it looks like candy floss? And that candy floss picture and these pictures showing what happens when fluid goes through the valves in other words, he was suggesting that you have eddy currents, the other side of a valve, that help close the valve. He even did experiments with glass tubes to show this with glass models and millet seeds. It wasn't until 20 years ago that we could look at detailed MRIs and actually see the currents within the blood flow. And guess what? He was right. Now, whether he did this from his knowledge of water engineering, we don't know. But my guess is he worked this out from the point of view of his deep knowledge of engineering of water. And he was not guessing, but he was actually postulating this. And it's a bit like the Higgs boson. The guy postulates and at the end of his life, they get the answer, except this is 400 years later. Now, he also said, well, if we're looking at the body, why can't we slice through things and look at it? And I love this picture because it was one of his very first pictures. He looked at the compartments, and I know there are a couple of orthopedic surgeons here in the audience, and you can see the compartments of the leg are no different than what we now see on MRI, or we now draw, and these are in fact Netta's pictures, and of course, because we now have an iPad, we can switch on or switch off all the labels. But believe me, those labels are the same labels that appeared on his 1485 drawing of a cross-section of the leg. I can't give a lecture on Leonardo without mentioning this, and I'm going to disappoint you all. You all know this picture. Let me ask you, is there anyone in the audience that's never seen this picture? 
There can't be, surely. No, wonderful. I mean, it's interesting. If I speak to school children, most of them have seen this picture. And it's a famous picture. It's to do with proportions. But Vitruvian man, Vitruvius was a Roman architect who worked out all beautiful proportions for buildings. And Leonardo said, well, the human body is beautifully proportioned. It's very correct, all right? And it's all perfectly proportioned. Well, actually, I've got news for you. This was complete bullshit. <laughs> complete bullshit, and I'll tell you why. He didn't know anything about genes and didn't realize that every little part of every person's body is independently grown. And as it happens, I often tell the story, and it's interesting, that in the audience today is a friend of mine who when he and I sit down at dinner, we are eye to eye looking at each other. And when we stand up after dinner, he's six foot three. <laughs> and you all know I'm not six foot three. <laughs> and the difference is purely and simply that his femur is one foot longer than my femur. I have the advantage when flying Ryanair, believe me. <laughs> so what they didn't realize in those days, that proportion, though idealistically, could be done like this, in real humans, the proportion story is ruined by genetics. And in fact, if you look at the other person of this generation, who funny enough was mentioned on a program last night on television, Albrecht Dura. He was the most manic statistician I've ever come across. And when I was in Windsor, I said to Martin Clayton, Martin, didn't Albrecht Dora do a lot of work on proportion? And he said yes. And Martin went over to the library, and he brought down a book, and he gave it to me, and it was an original 1505 book in copper-plated Germanic writing. And it was nothing but hundreds of pages of numbers that Albrecht Dorr had measured every possible thing in the human body to try and prove there was a perfect human. He was wasting his time. Now, if you're going to tell a good story, you've got to have a little bit of intrigue. You've got to have a royal connection, which, by the way, the Queen owns all these. And you've really got to have a bit of sex in it to make it interesting. <laughs> so I show this picture, which is fascinating. Here is the male... Here is the pelvis of the female, and at the time of Galen and at the time that this picture was done, it was thought that there were three souls that produced, that produced a new baby. One was the animal soul that came from the spine, the yellow arrow. Two was the spiritual soul, the, the red arrow that came from the heart, down here, <coughs> and three was the material soul that came from the testes, and all of these three went into the making of a new baby. Interestingly enough, Leonardo da Vinci said, the testes is the cause of ferocity, and I think many women in the audience might agree with that. He also made a very interesting observation in this picture. Here is the lady's breast, and there is the nipple. And from the nipple is a pathway going down to the uterus, to the pelvis. Fascinating, because there isn't a pathway does that, but yet there is a pathway, and the pathway is called oxytocin. And yet endocrines were not discovered until just over 100 years ago. The whole idea of endocrine hormones being carried around the body is only just over a hundred years old. And yet he postulated that something went from the breast down to the pelvis. And the answer is it does, but it's in fact the hormone oxytocin. And what I want you to see is the picture I showed you of the woman's pelvis ten slides ago was rubbish. It was a pelvis and a uterus of a cow. Now look at this picture. Ten years later, and I think you can all see the ovary, you can see the suspensory ligament, and actually there is a modern scan inside a woman's pelvis, and you can see that the anatomy is not quite perfect, but certainly becoming near perfect. 
Even the idea of the seminal vesicles, which are marked in yellow arrow, and there with the vas in, in, in red, this is a modern <coughs> x-ray of the seminal vesicles. By the way, only the French do this. No one else starts messing about down below like that. But you can see there is a tube here, sorry, there's a tube here, and an area where the sperm are gathered in the seminal vesicle. It's not quite accurate, but the position is accurate. And you can see, eight years later, Leonardo has done some dissections of women's bodies and of male genitalia, and he is beginning to get the anatomy almost 100%. One of his most famous pictures, and this has a little bit of red in it, well, at the time that I was giving this lecture the first time, one of my daughters was pregnant. And so I sent her to have this scan done, and that was the result. I mean, the result after the scan when the baby was born. And you can see that this position is very good. Sadly, the actual uterus is not so good. And by the way, he's now become a little cook and stuff. All right. But what I want you to look at is this. That was Velcro. Let me show you again. We call this the Velcro picture. Leonardo's idea that the mother, the placenta of mother and baby were like Velcro is a wonderful idea. It's not quite right, but it's a wonderful idea. And he was full of ideas, and you can see them scrawled on the paper. Now, what I've been showing you is magnificent two-dimensional pictures that give a 3D look. Nowadays, we're actually using real 3D, and I thought some of you would be interested to see how we actually can take the human body, scan it in 3D, and then print it in 3D. So I've just got a short two-minute film to show you that. The Mechanics of Man exhibition is being held this year at the Queen's Gallery of the Palace of Holyrood House this was as the part Edinburgh of the Festival. Edinburgh International Festival. And the reason I was invited is because the theme of this year's festival is technology. What we're going to do is look at, in the exhibition, the pictures and anatomical drawings that Leonardo da Vinci did 500 years ago in trying to show the three-dimensionality of the human body. And we're going to now, alongside of these pictures, show the modern technology, how we really can see them in three dimensions, using CT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds, etc. In other words, the most modern imaging technology that illustrates what Leonardo was trying to show. We have a wonderful collection of human prosections that have been plastinated after their dissection. So the detail of the human body is shown in intricate detail. I was provided the MRI data, which is a DICOM data set. It's effectively a, a bitmap image, a grayscale image, generated by the MRI in slices through the object. Our software then takes those slices and um, joins up areas of the same uh, grayscale. And so we can change, we can choose to have the muscle, which is one grayscale, or the, or the bone, which is another, and it will actually physically join up those layers of equal grayscale to generate a 3D surface. The printer takes in a file called a stereolithographically triangulated language, or an STL file, which is a surface model of the, of the object we want to build. This takes software and slices that into layers. And each layer is then fed up. to an inkjet printer. So we have a, a set of inkjet print heads, and those actually print out a liquid resin, a liquid polymer, a liquid plastic. Uh, there's a light at the one end of the printhead stack that will, as the um, printhead goes over it, it turns the liquid resin to a solid. So it's using ultraviolet light. Well, we've got a, a number of heads, so some print out the build material, which will be your final part, and some print out a support material, which, because it's coming out as liquid, it needs somewhere to land. So the layers are 30 microns thick, so each layer adds 30 microns of the part. It keeps doing this from the bottom to the top of the part. When it's finished, you'll have your part embedded into a gel-like support structure, which we then remove using um, a water jetting process. The difference with this printing is that it had to be transparent. So there's a difference in the material we're using. Uh, the technology we've got will allow us to use either opaque or transparent materials, and actually we can grade between those as well if, if we wanted to. The final heart in the exhibition will be alongside a very interesting experiment 
that Leonardo drew, and we will have the original Leonardo picture showing the eddy currents, and we've got a moving MRI showing exactly the same thing, and the heart will be shown to show that the chambers of the heart are what they're like as an example of modern technology. But in the future, it is likely that this technology is going to be used more and more. There was a patient who had a particularly nasty fracture of the pelvis, and that patient's CT scan was then 3D scanned so that the surgeon could actually have a look at what he was going to operate on before he operated and it will be used more and more in the future. It's great to see the application of additive layer manufacturing going off into other aspects, rather than just in engineering applications. It's great to see it in medical applications. It's also great to see it in the interface between the, heart, the arts, humanities, and, and medicine, and engineering. So, yeah, it's brilliant. So, what I've shown you so far, and I'm coming to the very end of the lecture, is that Leonardo was a guy who was very accurate in his drawing, amazingly intuitive in the new ideas, new concepts that he put forward to illustrate how the body worked. And if any of you are really interested in his artwork, what I've got here is an app that I was involved making with the Royal Collection. And you can see all the pictures, and we've made 3D models to go with quite a lot of them. All the pictures are actually here. But what is wonderful with this app is that you can actually pick out a picture and have a look at it. And then, when you've got the picture, <coughs> do what we can't do on a computer, enlarge them. And you can see the labelling of all the shoulder muscles there. Now, I know that most of you in this room don't read medieval Italian. I once asked in an audience like this, I presume there's no one who reads medieval Italian. And a guy at the back put his hand up and he said, actually, I'm professor of medieval Italian. <laughs> so I was stymied. So I said, okay, you read it. But the other thing is, all of this is written in Leonardo's mirror writing, which is back to front. So if you actually want to be able to read it, You've got to reverse it in a mirror to start off with. And then, to make it easier for you, we translated all the documents. <laughs> Actually, that was someone's PhD thesis, just translating all the documents. But it is wonderful, because then you can sit down, and even if you don't know the anatomy, you can learn both the Italian and the anatomy, and his descriptions of all the different work that he did. And as you see, there are some magnificent pictures that I showed you just before. And you can see the detail and the labelling is just magnificent in his art. It's actually available to anyone. It's on the web. It's on the iPad store. And I think it is £10. By the way, I do not get a penny of it. It goes straight to the Queen. It's the Royal Collection. Some of you may have come across these statues, nothing to do with Leonardo, but what I want you to realise is the modern technology is being used now within the art world as well as the anatomy world. Some of you may have seen on the television in February, there is a very likely attribution of these magnificent anatomical bronzes to Michelangelo. So what we've been doing is using the 3D technology which I've just shown you with the heart, and this was the heart that we scanned and had in the exhibition. We're now doing the same with other statues, and this is a complete <coughs> replica of the Michelangelo statue. And because it is in a 3D format, all you have to do is turn the <coughs> dial and you can print it in a shrinky-dink version for the children. So my, you know, eventually my grandchildren will be playing with shrinky-dink artworks. And here is the actual statue that you just saw a second ago. And I think in the long term, that's going to be something that you're all going to see much more in the world of both art and medicine, which of course Leonardo himself <coughs> brought them together. And I hope I've given you some idea as to how extraordinary an anatomist, way, way, way before his time, was Leonardo. The only tragedy is that none of the pictures I showed you came into common usage 
until three or four hundred years after he had done it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And can I please thank the young lady here for all her hard work, because it is extremely difficult. Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed that enormously, uh, learning something new every day. And I learned not only that was Leonardo a genius, but he was also a bit of a cheeky chappy. Mm. Even, did you say boo-boos? Yes. I think that's a first in Leonardo's scholarship. I like that very much. Now, if you're happy to take I'm happy to answer any questions. We have some time. Um, I just wondered in um, 16th century Italy what um, type of opposition Leonardo would have come across in doing anatomical dissection. I understand that um, in this country there was considerable opposition right up until the Anatomy Act was passed. Very good point. It's interesting. Most people believe, wrongly, that the church was totally against dissection. In 1390, remember we're talking 1480 to 1500, in 1390 there was a papal bull that actually said, we encourage you to find the cause of death and do anatomies. Now, it wasn't easy to do, and that was not because of any uh, religious reason. It's very dirty. They didn't have embalming. If you were doing a, a dissection in the summer, you probably only had 48 hours, 72 hours before it became intolerable. There were certain rules that you could not dissect a person from your own town or principality. There were things like that that made it emotionally and physically difficult. But from the point of view of being allowed to do it from the church's point, it was allowable and actually encouraged after 1390. There was a real problem between the Roman period and 1390 and not many people had done any dissection in the end of the 1300s. Good point, though. It was difficult. Hence why he only dissected probably two women. Because, of course, the naughty people were all men. Most of the people that they got, most of them were criminals that were given from the state to the medical school, if you like, to dissect, or to the artists. Michelangelo also did a lot of dissection himself. Probably not as much as Leonardo, but certainly did it over the whole of his lifetime. And I've recently been I've written a, a, a chapter of a book which will be coming out on that, on Michelangelo's dissections. No. We, we know he was a very good artist. His education was totally in Verrocchio's... Um, studio, if you like, in his team. And he obviously was a very talented artist. In one of his portfolio A4 pieces of paper, he actually says, you have to be a very uh, strong of mind, strong of nose to be able to dissect. And it is a horrible experience in the dark at night with flayed bodies. He makes a lovely story. And then... You have to be a very good artist to take that knowledge and put it on paper, which he did. And he comments on that. But there is no, as far as I am, as far as I know, no known reason, um, no known uh, explanation of where he learnt the technique. We do know, however, in the 1508 to 10 period, he worked with Marc Antonio della Torre, who was professor of philosophy and anatomy in Pavia. Sadly, this young man died of the plague, I think it was 1510 or maybe 12. And that's when Leonardo's main dissection stopped. So he was working with a professor of anatomy in a university for quite a bit of the time who presumably got in many of his bodies. The others were got from the hospitals. And the famous one that I showed you of the small liver and big spleen, that was known as the, the old man who was thought to be 100 years old. And if you read all the discussion about that man, 
he actually makes the diagnosis of the first coronary artery thrombosis as the cause of death. And he draws the coronary arteries blocked and wiggly. And so he actually got that man from the church rest home or hospice or whatever you like to call it. And was he spoke to the man before he died and then was allowed to dissect him after he died. That's known about. Vecchio is his name, the old man. So it's worth looking that up if you're interested. Yes, very interesting question. The Queen's set of 200 odd drawings, which are all on the iPad, if you want to get that uh, iPad version. Um, in fact, I'll go back to that because then if you want to, you can look it up later. It's Leonardo da Vinci Anatomy for iPad. All those pictures, and they're all on that iPad app, are in Windsor Castle in the print room. There are no actual copies by his own team, not like Michelangelo, who had a lot of people copying his work. We even have his fingerprint, or thumbprint, I can't remember if it's a finger or a thumb, on one of the actual pictures. And he was a person who worked on his own. He didn't have a workshop. He didn't have a big team. So there don't seem to be any, if you like, original copies. Now, for instance, I own a facsimile, which are a digital printed, well, they weren't digital, a photographic printed set of all those pictures. There are a thousand of those in the world, but there aren't many, um, there aren't, there aren't many copies of his original work that have been done at the period, at the time. We don't know, but it's thought that he did the dissection, he did lots of little drawings, he then went home, wiped his hands and did the final drawings. And there's good reason to believe that because there's very little non, um, there's very little human tissue on the final drawings in Windsor. And any of you that dissected in a dissecting room will know it's, it is a messy procedure. A final question, perhaps. Please. I'm trying to think of what was going on with this. I'm trying to think of why did he work um, completely on his own, or did people know what he was doing at the time? You know, were people talking about him? Yes. Did he know, did other people know, he asked, or was it in secret? I don't think it was in secret, but I don't think he went round <laughs> shouting about it. Both he and Michelangelo knew that each other were doing dissections. They were rivals. I won't say they were friends, because they weren't. They were rivals, and they, they slagged each other off on many occasions. But I think they both knew that they were both doing dissections. But it wasn't something that you shouted about. You kept it quite quiet and you did it in a back room. And when he died, all these two, three hundred pictures, the poor gentleman, Mr. Melzi, who was his secretary, confidant, boyfriend, we, you know, we don't know exactly the relationship, but probably all of the above, he said, I don't understand these pictures. What are they? Put them all together in a big leather-bound folio, and it was that folio that was brought to Charles II in England by the Duke of Arundel, the Earl of Arundel. So I don't think that most people in, I mean, in, in Florence or, you know, in Italy knew about the work that was going on. I'm sure a few of them did see some of his drawings, but it was kept fairly quiet. And then they all came to England and were locked away in Windsor Castle. So no one had access to them. And the fact that there were no copies in Italy is surprising. And that makes me think he kept it very quiet. Well, if that's whetted your appetite, ladies and gentlemen, upstairs for the final few days, we have the Designing Bodies exhibition in the small temporary exhibition space in the Hunterian Museum. And we're evaluating that today. So do give us your feedback on that. Please also do give us your feedback on the forms you've got for the event today and give it to Haley or to myself. Please do join us on a fortnight for Jack Ashby on the 1st of March talking about 
you know, animals and stuff is from the Grant Museum at UCL. It remains only to thank you for coming out on this rather Baltic day, as we say in Newcastle, uh, to thank Haley, who's just disappeared, for organising it all, but finally, of course, to thank our speaker for a scintillating lecture. Thank you very much.